The world's leading architectural photographer, Hélène Binet, is Swiss-French by birth, born in Sorengo in 1959. But she was raised in Rome, the eternal city. A city where historical landmarks meet contemporary apartment blocks, where everyday bars and restaurants are built on ancient stones. A city where civilizations clash and merge and fuse into something nearly impossible to capture. But Hélène does. An imaginative and curious child homeschooled by a family of musicians. In her camera, Hélène found a tool with which to question the world and express her ideas. Her architectural photographs are like magic lanterns transporting us away from the ordinary. In her works, we do not only perceive buildings, but we feel them through absence and power, shadows and light. I'm Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the Pictet Group, sharing ideas and insights to understand and improve the modern world. Winston Churchill once said, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Was he right? Today we ask, how do the cities we live in transform human life? And what can we do to ensure the cities of the future encourage human flourishing? We had the privilege of recording this conversation live inside the major retrospective exhibition Lightlines, the architectural photographs of Hélène Binet at the Royal Academy of Arts, one of Europe's oldest established art institutions at the heart of London. We are joined by photographer Hélène Binet herself, James Cheshire, professor of geographic information and cartography at University College London and co-author of the books London, the Information Capital and Atlas of the Invisible and Solt Kohalmi, Global Head of Real Estate and Co-CEO of Pictet Alternative Advisors. The conversation is chaired by Cynthia Gorman-Shem, COO of Pictet Asset Management. We will start talking about the cities, how we see them, and in particular, Maybe one question for all of you to open the conversation. If you could tell me what is your favorite city and why? It's a wonderful question, but also uh, difficult. But I grew up in Rome, so it's the city that I love the most. And why? Because of the stratification of culture and how you see an evolution of a city from being a place where not far away the Etrusk have been starting their life, then the Roman, and then from then you had the Middle Age, and then you had the, the Renaissance, not so much, but a little bit, and the Baroque, and then um, it's, it's, it's wonderful to see. And it's still a city which has a human scale, which is important. I'm sure I have a bit of a romantic view, but, <laughs> uh, and it's not so hard to be a young artist in, and make your living in Rome, but it's been so important for me. Amazing city. James? Well, I think I should say London, because that's my home city, and I've <laughs> lived here for well over a decade now and grew up not far from here. I mean, I think as a city, it's something that, you know, is incredibly vibrant, incredibly diverse in terms of the different, you know, neighborhoods you live in and, and places you visit and rich in its history. And I think that's something that I've reflected on quite a lot in, you know, the last couple of years or so, particularly as the city itself is much quieter in, in the, in the centre. 
And I, I didn't think I'd miss that hustle and bustle, but actually I, I do. And I'm so looking forward to hopefully, you know, seeing the city's rebirth again, perhaps, as uh, the pandemic restrictions hopefully begin to lift in, in the coming months. And hopefully we'll talk about that a little bit later as well. Thank you. Shav? I'll break the rule immediately because I'll say three, but I'll try to be very brief. With my heart, it's real. I think that the city's natural aspect makes it something super special. And so despite the disparity in social incomes and so on, it's just one arrives in Rio and you feel special the moment you're there. London to live, because I think the diversity, the fact that you feel like it's an agglomeration of many villages and you can get, you know, if you're a cosmopolitan person, London is unrivaled, I feel. And the future for Singapore. I really think Singapore has many of the architecture perhaps will, will address that, that inspires a way we need to think going forward. Uh, indeed, very amazing cities, all of them. And there's, there's a lot to be seen in these cities. Maybe, uh, Ellen, coming to you a little bit on why you chose photography on the architectural side. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to what you do today? Sometime in life, you make decisions when you're quite young and you don't rationalize completely. It's not like now that you put together facts and you on the paper, but that it happens. It happens that I grew up in Rome and there must have been an inspiration that I had a very free education. So walking around, drawing more than learning curriculum was very important. The academic side of life wasn't easy because I'm quite dyslexic. So being creative was important. And then uh, I moved to London and met wonderful architects that one became my husband, one was the Dean of Architecture Association and loved photography, loved books, and gave me the opportunity of photographing architecture where I haven't done any architecture photography. Normally to have such a position, you need a big portfolio and say, can I get a job? But he just said, and then let's do it. So we did Leverance, we did Hedrick, we did Picciones. And for me, it was like an explosion. I felt so comfortable in that dimension. I worked in a theater in Geneva for two years. I had done advertising, I'd done portrait, but it was just not me. And then suddenly it happened. So luck is also important and intuition. James, can you tell us a little bit the role of cartography in understanding the architecture of cities and, and rural areas as well? Well, I think, you know, maps in the same way that photos do, they offer a snapshot of, of the world and they offer a window into it. And when you look at a map, it, it does two things. One, it can reflect what's there. So the, the city footprint can be a factual statement in many ways about what is there, you know, roads, rivers. But it can also be a political statement or it can reflect power dynamics and tensions and, and things like that. And so it's not a passive thing, it's actually an active thing and decisions get taken off the basis of maps, you know, where buildings might be constructed, for example, or areas that might be renewed and that, and that kind of thing. And in that sense, it's a bit more of a conversation. And, and I really enjoy that aspect of creating maps and sharing them and having conversations. And that aspect for sure is something that we sometimes take for granted, I think, when we look at a map, but um, they are really a essential part of, you know, cities and where we live. And, and that's true, true of you know, rural areas too, of course, because they may not stay rural forever or, you know, they may reflect these sort of deep histories of what, what happened in those particular places. Interesting. And maybe to make the connection with what you see, Jolt, on the investment side. So we've seen some visual, amazing, artistic work, cartographic depiction of cities. 
So how do all of this together, from your perspective, you know, how does that input into how much real estate is worth and investing uh, on real estate? You know, I think as James mentioned, there's a lot of data involved in maps for how you look at cities. And, and of course, real estate investing is about data. You take a lot of data points that allow you to locate where you believe growth will come. And you can see, for example, on, on heat maps where more people pass by, where more people perhaps come at certain times of day and so on. And, and these can be helpful in terms of identifying areas that are, that are up and coming. Shoreditch 10 years ago or King's Cross prior to the large development perhaps are, are, are good examples. But I think that's the data element of real estate. Then comes the other element, which is I think in, in another life I would have been an architect myself, is the aesthetics. And you know, if you create something of desire, more people will want to work, live, or, or do whatever in that building. And so the aesthetical side is very important for real estate because that creates the emotion which in turn can have a real value and hopefully a positive impact on the city as well. Indeed. And on the aesthetic side, I think we can turn to Elen here. You have got commissioned work by some of the world's leading architects, and you have not just photographed the buildings or the, the architecture itself, but parts of it that actually bring out the soul and life of buildings. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like working with architects like Zaha Hadid, Peter Zumtor, and, and how your artistic imprint came through through the work you did with them? I mean, I've been very lucky to meet them and very lucky also that they gave me the, the, the trust to say just, it would be wonderful if we can work together. Uh, they are two very different characters in a sense they related, the relation with the image is very different. And like Zaha had it, uh, loved my work and really wanted me to photograph even if I am quite in another perspective of her work and kind of slow details and very anchored, very earthy. But I believe there was something she recognized of herself in her work. And uh, she always said, you know, I really want you to work with me, but I like 100 of photographers will give a different view of my work. And that was very liberating. Because let's say the A to Z of a building is done. I don't need to show the entrance and the rest done. And for me, that's wonderful because that's what not I'm interested. In. And I can really look for why she's making the building. What is behind her energy? What is her dream? How did she get there? What was the decision? What, 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 what does it mean, that building? And with Pizzi it's the opposite doesn't like publications, says space is space. If you want to know my building, go there. You got to hear, you got to feel, you got to be cold or warm, touch the water, touch. It's this, I'm in the middle of a mountain, I'm in the city, this is my building. And of course, it's completely right. My photography has nothing to do with space. I'm not, I'm not the building. I'm a photographer. I'm a photographer, first of all. I have my eyes, I have my view. What can I do? It's three-dimensional. But he loves books. And I think books are a very beautiful way of talking about space. The unfolding of the page and the way you remember something you've seen before and the way you leave white page to imagine and the way you... And early on, we had this wonderful collaboration with Lars Müller where we make the first kind of book where his work was all together. With a, Lars Müller is also a designer, he's almost an artist. 
in the sense, in the way he works with designer, and together we create that book. So it was completely different way of working, but really about celebrating ideas, first of all. One of the questions I always get asked when I give talks is, um, why are you making a book? <laughs> you know, all the data you're looking at is dynamic, it's yeah. moving, it's changing, cities change. Make it a website, make it a service, don't make it a book. And we're always very resistant to doing that because I think it captures precisely that tension that you've just talked about between can you ever capture the essence of a place or a space in a single image? Well, no, you can't capture all of its complexity. And equally, there are many different perspectives, right? So you could have a hundred different ways of looking at a particular area. And I think one of the amazing things about books that you know, you've just articulated that is the idea that you can control the experience in a sense. You can give the breathing space for the reader. And actually, you know, in our case, the page size is fixed, the margins are fixed, the resolution is fixed, and we can optimize precisely for that image on that page. On a website, you know, people are fighting for, is it going to be viewed on a phone? Is it going to be viewed on a 27-inch monitor? All that kind of thing. And, and that essence gets lost, that kind of physicality of the object. And that's, I'm really pleased to hear you say that, because that's precisely why we still push to create books because they have that power that you can't really get any other way, I think. But also, I mean, that was one of the questions I thought I could have to you because your map are very beautiful and, you know, you, you talk about this, uh, you know, hidden world that uh, we want to reveal. But I think, and your work is based on data, so, but what's the role of imagination? Because you make beautiful map, so I think in your work, the role of imagination is very important. It's not only about receiving information and with the numbers. You want somebody to create his own world. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. And I think we often view maps as these factual statements of impartial perspectives, but they're not. And, and you have to create, or you have to make creative decisions about what goes into them. And I think, you know, when, when, when I walked around here and looking at your work, I was struck by the similarity in the sense that you have an entire building in front of you and you choose to focus on one part of the building and give it a different perspective than when I was here before. There was a family discussing, I forget where it is, but the image you have of a bridge. Yeah. Is it a trick of the eye, the steepness of the bridge, or is it the bridge really that steep? You know, how are the cars driving over it? And, and there was this whole discussion taking place and you're playing with people giving that perspective. And we can do exactly the same thing with data. You know, we imagine our database is the building. We take a decision that we're going to look at this part of it and we're going to depict it in this yeah. particular way. And that is crucial. And I, I work very closely with my co-author, Oliver Uberti, who's a designer and, you know, trained artist. And what's different about our relationship is we work equally to one another. So it's not me as an academic yes. churning out some stuff that he then has to make look visually engaging. Every step of the way, we are interrogating each other on the process and bringing that creativity in. And I think that's a really important aspect of what we do. Paris has welcomed artists, poets, and other dreamers for many centuries. But no picture of the many-storied city of lights could be complete without the flaneur. The word comes from the Old Norse flana, meaning to wonder without purpose. This archetypal stroller of the streets walks unhurriedly 
with no destination in mind, observing the urban world incognito within the safety of a crowd. He or she is a human camera, seeking to capture and understand the very soul of modern metropolis. In our age of constant digital distractions, perhaps we could all learn something from the pleasures of city living by embracing the habits of the flaneur. the topic of cities, you once said every time you photograph a space, there's a history, and often this history is connected to the city. How has your experience been about photographing older cities versus newer cities? And do you have a preference for contemporary cities? Can you tell us a bit more about that, the contrast? I never worked a lot with cities. Once I was invited to have a small exhibition at the School of Architecture in Harvard, and then I had to talk about cities and it was a wonderful subject. It's very difficult for me as a photographer to understand where the city starts and fish it. Is it the transport system? Is it the dream of the people? Is it the surface of the building? Is it the quality of life? Where, where is the city? So if I will have to encounter a reflection of the city, I will have to really frame very much because a city, it's everything. It's us being happy or unhappy, struggling, growing, meeting diversity. So I don't think I am only a nostalgic because I grew up in Rome. I like contemporary city. I like, I like new space because our future is about creating more quality space where you have capacity of living well together with diversity, respect for the nature. So if I see this, it is something inspiring and to understand where it is happening. It can be little details that reveal the rest. Perhaps just a very quick thought to that, Ellen, it's just interesting. We're at the World Economic Forum, I'm, I'm involved with the decarbonization of the built environment. And one of the most interesting thoughts there that came up was we real estate people tend to think we are the city because you know everything is buildings. But actually, there is no solution without public transportation. There is no solution without the electricity that has to come from wherever it may come from that actually powers all the buildings and all the people getting around. So, and you, you put many more layers on it, there's actually the people in the city that meet. Yes. But it's just interesting that any solutions that we provide to cities are so multi-layered that it gets very complicated very quickly. Some cities have evolved significantly in the past few years, and maybe I turn to you, James, where you have mapped in your last book Shenzhen and what it was like in the 80s versus what it's like nowadays. And it's striking to see the, the, the difference between a, a very much of a landscape map compared to a very gray and, and built city. Can you tell us maybe, you know, how you see that side of things having, you know, over history, we talked about, you know, history and how as cities grow, but, you know, the role of cartography in older cities versus newer ones. Well, that map actually, or there was a kind of a, a pair of maps, actually a couple of images. It's one of the few examples in our book where we just took satellite imagery. So you have a satellite called Landsat, but basically it's been going for a long time, for decades. And so you can take these snapshots over a long time periods. And we just chose to take two of those and frame those snapshots prior to urbanization and post urbanization, I suppose it's still ongoing. And we thought that was all we needed to do for that because the comparison tells enough of the story. You know, the fact, the amount of land that's been reclaimed as, mm. as they move, uh, extend out into the Delta area or 
the, the new bridges or the extent to which you know what was green agricultural land has become urbanized and i think that is a fascinating tension between some of the developments you see in china compared to the development you might see in, in london there's just no way that that kind of uh, rapid development would happen and i think it's going to be it's very interesting different set of kind of cultural perspectives on what works and what doesn't and i think that's partly why we chose that approach that imagery approach to show just what had happened because i think any kind of digitization of city boundaries and all that kind of stuff it's just impossible to capture what was there so we just thought we'll just show the image and then uh, the reader can pour over it can do the side by side comparison and imagine what it must be like to uh, be in the place decades ago and be in the place uh, today indeed and just like in that example we had pretty much very little or nothing and it has developed quite a bit in the past few years there's been a, a big transformation in cities as well where the old is replaced by the new and maybe jolt to come to you on the investment side how do you view the value of some historical buildings that have unfortunately been destroyed because of you know the money some of these new developers are making how, how do you bring that perspective into investing and valuing i think that um pandemic has been terrible but one thing it's done is it's brought a bit more conscious to people i think about many things and and one has been a realization which i've been trying to speak of for a while but i think our whole industry is now very awake to is that real estate is a very big contributor to carbon emissions it's about 40% which is you know we are the major uh, emitter and of that 40% 45% of all emissions happen up front when you build a new building and so the embedded carbon of demolishing a building and by the way where that goes to what landfill the, the materials go to and then building a new building this is a very mm. inefficient and bad for the earth way to think about our urban environment and i have to stress it's in the developed world because as, as james mentioned you know china is on a different and all of asia is on a different mm-hmm. spectacle there you need new buildings because there's a they simply didn't have the historical buildings in in most instances including in shenzhen and so but but within it within a european and an american context you know we need to start thinking about refurbishing and repurposing existing buildings hopefully in a in a smart in an architecturally interesting but also in an environmentally friendly way and th- this process is ongoing this is what we're discovering it's very artisanal because there's no set of easy rules that allow for a transformation of historical buildings into modern environmental footprint and modernly used buildings so we have to use creativity and artisanal ideas but i think that trend is going to be very big and especially when we will start paying for embedded carbon emissions because when we realize the cost of building a new building in an overall standpoint including the environment i think we'll have less less of what you just mentioned and i think the challenge also is as you are describing in the older cities trying to see a little bit the invisible which um you bring very well uh, elen with with your pictures and maybe just james a question for you on 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 cartography you talked about london being your favorite city and you know how such a fast paced um and and crammed city as london has also uh, not only history but also hidden buildings uh, and what i've seen since i've moved here is also the contrast in between an old building all of a sudden with a new development right next to it or where they've managed to keep the facade and then you know do things in in the back to to really keep that that soul of of the city going 
Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about your Atlas of the Invisible and how to see the invisible through cartography in London and in, more in general? Well, I think we are interested in, in how data can reveal things that we can't easily and ordinarily see. And we say that data often renders things invisible. So we collect loads of it. You know, we all have a mobile phone that's collecting data about us. But we can't access it. And there's two problems with access. One is you need to have a, you know, be an expert in, in, in data often to, to, to access it. But the second thing is there's so much of it, it's very hard to comprehend. And in the same way that, you know, Ellen takes a picture of a, a small part of a, a building and gives her view and helps the viewer into your eye to how you look at things, we do the same with data. And, and the idea is that we can extract billions of numbers and we can render them in a, in a way that people can understand and, and interrogate. And I think that that's really what making the invisible visible is, is about for us. It's taking something we can't otherwise see, but we have data on and visualizing it in a way that people will be able to engage with and uh, crucially interrogate and start to ask them their own questions about what we're showing and you know whether, for example, some of the graphics we have on carbon emissions, you know, mm. whether that's a world we wish to continue or whether actually we're at a po an inflection point where we can stop doing what we're doing and we can take decisions to help improve things uh, going forward. And Elen, in your case, you bring out the invisible maybe through photographing hidden churches and parts of buildings that are hidden in the back. Can you tell us a little bit more about what draws you to these invisible or yeah, yes, more I mean, in the background? Uh, like images. I said in the beginning, because there's a sense of impossibility also really talking about space, I think what interests me is not to represent, but is to give the possibility of grasping dimensions which are hard to grasp. And of course, size of the universe, who we are, where we are, religion. I'm not religious, but I believe for many people understanding, you know, spirituality. So these are the matter that has been always embedded in buildings and in places. And uh, I try to bring them out somehow as a moment of reflection because of tangibility by this process of reducing, by process of poetry and uh, inviting the imagination to have its role. Can I just ask about giving people a sense of scale? So one of the things we talk about in, in the start of our book is, you know, uh, the invisible can be too small to see, such as DNA, or too large to comprehend like a black mm. hole. And I think, you know, particularly the, the images behind us here, when I looked at them, I thought, there's no sense of... These, these could be this big, or they could be, yeah. you know... Uh, a field. Uh, yeah, they could be huge. Um, and so, you know, in terms of your process, I mean, is that something that you're very consciously trying to do to almost disorientate us about <laughs> the scale we're looking at? in order that we look more closely in many ways? Or is it almost an artifact of the way that you do it, you know, you're consciously trying to do other things? I mean, when you work, there's always an intention, of course, and then there's always things that happen that you don't control because, because you have an emotion, because it's new, or because something you've done in the past. But I would say that I'm not interested to describe. So the moment I'm not this interested in describing, easily you lose the scale or uh, that's why there's not many people in my photograph because I'm not interested to kind of have immediately that proportions that 
bring you also to a narrative, to a, um, the, it is, yes, it is a, a desire to, to see, you know, this can be very small or it can be a landscape somewhere in the middle of an imaginary country. So I, it's more interesting for me to say that. Widely regarded as the world's most beautiful and most romantic city, Venice was once a powerful republic, the first international financial center and a major maritime power. The 118 islands of Venice are connected by more than 400 bridges and thousands upon thousands of tourists have relished traveling in gondolas through the city's famous network of canals. Each year the city sinks by between one and two millimeters and floods frequently threaten its historic landmarks. In 2019, more than 80% of the city was covered in water. As the climate crisis accelerates, many of the world's major metropolises will come to experience challenges that Venetians have known for centuries. And the Venetians themselves will find their magnificent city even harder to preserve and protect. Maybe a question, Schultz, for you about how you see the city architecture evolving with the changes that we have been brought about recently around COVID, uh, remote working, e-commerce. Do you see that, if you had a crystal ball, will that continue on and will that transform city architecture? Or do you think it would go back maybe a little bit more to the pre-COVID way of living? I think the term I, I, I quite like, and, and I, I believe it to be true, is that essentially COVID just merely accelerated existing underlying trends. It's not that COVID did something and we flicked the light and it became dark and we went from black and white to color. I think that, that we've been having these trends that, that you mentioned very briefly already, and COVID has greatly accelerated them. Everybody learned how to click an order at home even the people who were most reticent to do so, because they had to. So we had an underlying trend that was going online. In the UK, we went from 25% to 41% online retail as a percentage of total retail in this space of time. And that means that we, we need to rethink retail spaces. Retail spaces will be more medical-led, I believe, or I should say health-led, medical and soul cycle and everything else. You know, we're going to see more and more space dedicated to people's increased conscious about their medical state. I think for, for offices is the biggest debate, but I do believe that innovation cannot happen without people meeting each other. 90% of innovation happens in the 10% of time that we're at the coffee machine or somewhere similar. So I believe that offices need to reinvent how they're structured internally. You know, I think we need to bring the outside insights. That's one of the big takeaways as well from the pandemic, that we want to feel like we're more in nature when we're inside. And then, of course, the big trend, which for London is a genuine issue, is that people increasingly want outdoor space. And so this is a question for mega cities is, you know, will people actually come back to the downtown? Because there has been a, a very, very significant emigration observed in particular in mega cities into the whether we call it suburbs or neighboring counties or what you may. Personally, I'm a believer in cities. I think that young people will come, but the age is continuously going down at which time most people do leave the city. So we have this constant flux of young people come in for the experience, for wanting to be together in a very, very intense and crowded environment, but the, but the age level at which they leave the city continues Indeed. to increase, I believe. 
And I think the, the, the notion of more green spaces in cities, as you're saying, is, is, is also something that, that has come out even more so during the pandemic, um, when people living in the cities couldn't go outside and actually had to stay within uh, a few blocks of their area. And without green spaces, it really has become quite, quite difficult. Ellen, have you noticed any difference in terms of the latest work that you've done or what you think may be coming up through this whole period of pandemic? And, and is, has there been a shift? I think this time was like for everybody a very reflective time and then this opportunity came also wonderful to have the exhibition and how my work would evolve in the sense of personal world this is still very open but definitely as a person we all became more aware of our relation with nature and from there also to issue from climate and the city is, is changing, but also the way of using the city, because I grew up in Italy where people are outside, and now finally you see people outside, in, and I hope it's going to stay. You know, in, in the front garden, they put little chair and they have a cup uh, of tea or a glass of wine in the evening, which this was never seen before. Mm. The park are full, so I think, yes, the city have to start not only to put the nature in the building or technology, but considering their outside space in a different way. Maybe, James, the role of cartography and gardens and mapping, how do you see that building in, in terms of, you know, hopefully more sustainable environments that we'll be living in in the future? Well, actually, I think I'd think more about data and what the data have told us and, and, and how things have changed. And, and I think there's a couple of things that I might just you know, reflect on. One is the idea that young people move in and then out of cities. That's always been the case. So London has always had lots of people coming in and moving out. And that's just how the city operates. But it's always been the case that more people have been coming in than going out. And the pandemic, I mean, saw a massive loss of people who were maybe originally from overseas going back to where they were from or, or moving out of the city, back with parents, all that kind of thing. And so whether those people return is, is, a, is an interesting question. And I think the other, the other thing that we've spotted in, in the data that we've been looking at and the research that we've been doing is that lockdown is a privilege for a lot of people because if you can't work from home, you can't do lockdown, right? So that's one thing. So the people we're talking about here are not the same people they have different responses to, to the way things have, have changed. I think that's important. And the other really significant thing that's come through is, is the idea that where you live, your neighborhood is really important to you. And I think that that has been the big change. People are spending more time at home in their neighborhood. And I think that that feeds into green space. So protecting green space near your home, I think is a really important thing that's happened, but also improvements in the built environment. So you know, reduction in traffic or, you know, things like that. And, and, and I think that those aspects, I think that's going to be really fascinating to see whether some of the things that we might come into the city for, restaurants, bars, all that kind of stuff, whether that moves out and, and we have less in the centre. And So indeed, COVID has shown us quite a few things throughout this period. But the other topic to look at as well when we look at architecture is climate change and how that has affected and will continue to affect the cities that we live in. Uh, and maybe for you, Schultz, about the climate change and effect on real estate, and in particular, maybe some, some more profound changes like um, what people are discussing in terms of Venice 
and potentially the city being at risk with you know the water levels increasing how do you see climate change really impacting real estate in the future and can we do anything to salvage cities and buildings uh, in the coming years well, I, th I think we can do a lot the question is are we going to do it fast enough I guess is what we what we're all all worried about because the, the time is running out and we have not shown even during I think COVID to be really good at global efforts of of, of this magnitude and, and climate change is a global point it, it can't be resolved by a city by a nation or, or by anybody else except if it's a globally resolved. I think your point around Venice, you know, obviously there is a problem of increasing water as, as temperatures rise and as, as ice glaciers melt, whether, whether water increases. And there are no solutions really yet. So Venice is one. And in Venice, obviously, short term, at least, they're trying to keep the cruise ships out. But my favorite example is Miami South Beach, which has record asset prices. They've, the homes have never cost as much as they do today. And yet there's no solution at the moment to the fact that Miami is sinking because it's on a, it's on a very sandy table and the ocean is increasing. So it's going the wrong way. It's sooner or later, we're going to, you know, first, second floor flats will, uh, will have to include scuba gear. You know, this isn't, this isn't right. So, so climate proofing cities or buildings individually is a real problem. And I, one of the things I foresee is I do think that if we don't act fast and unfortunately, buildings near the sea will decrease in value. At the moment, they have increased a lot because people would like to be, see a way to get near nature. But these buildings may, may well decrease in value. And I think people may well shift to mountains again, which used to be the case about 100 years ago when they think about a home of desire. I, I think that though the, the, the overall problem is, is we need to, again, because we're the largest emitters, 40% of all emissions, we need to do a whole host of things to bring down the emissions of buildings. And so this includes everything from insulation to smart sensors that make sure we turn off the lights when nobody's in the room or turn off the heating. And we need to electrify a lot of the heat pumps and so on, how we heat and cool buildings. Again, all of these are, are very big transitions and, and the real estate industry needs to work together with governments, need to work together with local councils and so on for us to create meaningful steps in the timeline that we need to create it. And maybe that's a final question for each one of you. You know, we've looked at different aspects around cities, about the impact of COVID, sustainability, what you've each seen in terms of the invisible through your different work. If I can ask you, if you can project yourself a little bit, but, you know, we've talked at the end about technology. How do you think technology will be impacting what each one of you does? And maybe, Elena, I can start with you. You're a traditional photographer. How do you believe that uh, your work will be impacted by technology in the next few years, if at all? I don't think technology will change my work because that's not my tool. Of course, I hope technology can help resolving problems, which I'm deeply concerned. That is climate, city, uh, being more a place of life. I, I worked also quite a lot in Bangladesh and with um, uh, NGO uh, already five, six years ago where climate was not how to stop, it was only how to protect ourselves, you know, mango grove, things, you know, and we are talking about thousands of people that will not have any place to live and will start to migrate. So technology in that case, it's to be aware, to know, 
to maybe help. But in my, the way I will express concern, the way I will make my work, uh, I don't see it changing. Uh, it's like playing the violin all your life. You might play a contemporary piece, but you play your violin. This is your instrument. How about you, James? How does technology impact you know, the data and the representations that you do on the cartography side? Well, I mean, I think on a very technical sense, I mean, we can do stuff with more data much more quickly. I mean, I've, I've been working on in this space for over a decade, just over a decade now, and, and it's extraordinary, even in that time period, you know, what, what I can work with. But I think in terms of the broader discussion, I think there are two things that I hope will happen. The first is we come to think of data as a positive, not a negative. I think a lot of the debate at the moment is concerns about privacy and, and impacts of data on negative impacts. And there are many positive things that data can do with the correct safeguards and, and everything else in, in place. And so I think that's one thing I'd like to see. And then the second thing is I would like to see more people empowered by data to then hold people particularly decision makers and policy makers and so on, to account more. Because we actually have the tools now, which anyone can go on a website and see. Jolt, on your side, technology and impact on... So I, I think probably my side is where technology will have the most profound, because I just think everything in real estate is being disrupted. Real yeah. estate is in the middle of the technology disruption. Again, probably is one of the last industries, because we're very old school in ways, in many ways. I think the pandemic has accelerated that. So from hopefully using data, forward-looking data, to actually coming up with smarter AI-led investment decisions, it obviously still enhanced, hopefully, by the human brain. But I think everything on the investment side will change, in, in my mind. Also, how, how investors interact with, with their investments. Will they be tokenized? And will, will there be a much easier way to exchange units as opposed to going to the land registry and every time registering that, hey, I own this building. I think all of that will change, but, but the key one that I'm hopeful for is around the environment, because I think that, that, is, that is the problem. We know it's here, it's now, and we also know that technology can actually help us. We, we can't stop living or working in places. I think that's why for a very long time we didn't appreciate how important our emissions are, because it's seen as a necessity. Mm -hmm. But, but that necessity doesn't mean that it's still not the largest denominator and not something we need to do about. So, so I hope that you know, it'll be much more normal that we'll have sensors, we'll realize how the individual building is behaving, and we'll take the appropriate actions to, to decrease our emissions. Because I think that, that, that is the one imperative we have if we're thinking a bit longer term for, for all of us. Thank you all very much for being here and for answering these questions. This episode of Found in Conversation featured Ellen Binet, James Cheshire, and Sol Kohalmi. The moderator was Cynthia O'Gorman-Shem. This series is brought to you by the Picte Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with How to Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers for this episode were me, Rosario Lebrija Razvetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou. Special thanks to Vicky Richardson, Chief Curator of Photography at the Royal Academy of Arts. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.